I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. San Francisco is situated at the heart of America's tech boom. It is perhaps part of the most prosperous area in human history. Yet, according to this week's guest, much of the city looks like a slum. Homelessness is rampant, drug use is soaring and violent crime continues to rise. Many are fleeing from California to escape these problems. So, what is happening to America's most progressive cities? To answer this question, I'm joined by the environmentalist and best-selling author, Michael Schellenberger. Is there a phenomenon of people leaving big cities in the United States? There is definitely a phenomenon of people leaving big cities. There's also been a phenomenon of people leaving California in particular. However, we haven't seen it translate into lower housing prices. So to the extent to which people are leaving, it's not clear that they're selling their homes. So it may be a phenomenon where some people are leaving temporarily without selling. But unfortunately, that means that there hasn't been the sort of economic consequence for city governments to reform their policies in order to keep their residents happy. Why California in particular, and where are these people going? I mean, people from California go to all sorts of states. I mean, the most famous is Texas, but people leave to Nevada. They've traditionally left to Texas, Utah, Colorado, Washington, Oregon. I mean, really all over the place. California's actually had a net migration over the last several years, and it accelerated under COVID. But yeah, I mean, the problems that I described in San Francisco which are mostly problems that had traditionally been on the progressive West Coast are now being seen in other cities around the United States as we deal with our drug addiction and drug overdose crisis. And is the pandemic accelerating these trends of people leaving big cities to other places? I mean, particularly, for example, in London, many people have decided that house prices are far too high, they can work from home, and suddenly they're buying properties in the countryside and in other places just outside of London. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely happening. We just haven't seen the decline in housing prices. I mean, that's part of the problem, I think, is that in California, there's a sense among the policymakers, the elected officials, and sometimes they say it out loud, which is basically, where else are you going to go? California remains such a desirable location, spectacular, 
geography, incredible climate. People really want to live here. I really want to live here. And so those of us that are fighting to improve this place, one disadvantage we have is that politicians will kind of have this attitude that, hey, if you want to live here, you can't really vote with your feet. So that's been a big part of the problem. I think the other issue is that there's something called the Curley effect, which was named after a Boston mayor, a terrible uh, mayor who drove out many of the people that he was unpopular with. And the result was that the people that left behind were the people that were more in more in his favor. So you end up getting a kind of uh, self-reinforcing vicious cycle. And I think to some extent that's occurred in California broadly and in San Francisco in particular. I want to talk about San Francisco in a moment. Why are people leaving cities like San Francisco generally? Can you give people a few reasons other than, for example, house prices or the pandemic? It seems there is something else going on here. I mean, I think it's hard for people that are not from here or who haven't spent any time on YouTube looking at videos to just understand how seriously chaotic and deteriorating the situation has become. You've started to see some people in New York complain about scenes that have become very common and familiar in San Francisco, but also in Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, which is that you have what Europeans actually call open drug scenes that Americans have euphemistically referred to as homeless encampments, which is really a misdescription of what is going on in these uh, situations. These are groups of drug users who have, because of their addiction, lost contact with friends and family. They no longer work. They live on the street because they're saving their money to support their addiction. This is people that are often, sometimes they're traumatized, sometimes they just got addicted because of partying too hard. But the addiction crisis in the United States has grown enormously. I used to work for philanthropies supported by George Soros, the very well-known currency speculator and billionaire. He's now a major philanthropist in the United States and has been for almost 30 years. When I got done working on drug decriminalization issues or what we call harm reduction issues in the 1990s, in the year 2000, 17,000 people were dying in the United States from illicit drugs. This year, 100,000 people died from illicit drugs. Drug overdose and drug poisoning is the number one cause of death for people 18 to 45. We, you know, you can put that 100,000 in perspective, that's three times more people than die in car accidents. That's five times more people than are killed by homicides. So the drug crisis is really, it should be like the number one issue in some ways, or at least it should be a tier one issue, but it's been like a tier three issue for reasons we can talk about. But really what's at the heart of what we call our homeless problem, but to some extent our crime problem is driven by drug addiction and drug abuse. Let's talk about San Francisco. This is the topic of your book, the main case study that you use. Why did you choose that city? Well, San Francisco, I mean, it's where I live. I mean, I live in Berkeley, which is about a 20 minute drive. It's across the bay from San Francisco. So it's a city I've, uh, I love. It's a city I moved to 30 years ago. I met my wife there. I've spent a lot of time in San Francisco is widely considered the most uh, beautiful city in the United States. It really punches above its weight in terms of cultural and political significance. Most of California's leaders over the last half century have come from San Francisco. I mean, a wildly disproportionate number, particularly when you consider it has just a fraction of the people as Los Angeles, just about one tenth of the people. 
as Los Angeles, depending on how you're counting those two regions. But San Francisco is really the heart of American liberalism, progressivism, and really what we would call the radical left. The subtitle of my book is Why Progressives Ruin Cities. And the word progressive itself has a very interesting genealogy, but the word today is sort of used synonymously for liberals. It often, but it really was also used by people on the radical left. And it's a word that has sort of united liberal and radical left people. And the result has been catastrophic. And I say this as somebody that comes from the left that used to be a part of the radical left. I now consider myself liberal, not progressive. But basically, San Francisco is really the incubator for a lot of the really terrible ideas that have been implemented and resulted in the deterioration and the destruction of some of our finest cities, including but not limited to San Francisco. Can you take us through some of the statistics in recent years to display what's happened to cities like San Francisco in terms of crime, drug use, homelessness, that sort of thing? Sure. Well, to give a sense of it, just California-wide, California saw an increase in what we call homelessness by 30%, even as the numbers declined in the rest of the United States by 18%. The word homelessness is really a propaganda word. It's not a very accurate word because the word ends up conflating very different groups of people. It ends up conflating people that are schizophrenic and are off their meds and need to be under some kind of uh, psychiatric care. It combines those people with people that are suffering from heroin or fentanyl or meth addiction and have lost connection with family and friends and are no longer working because of their addiction. And then it combines people that are just down on their luck. So we do have a, a different word that we sometimes use called unsheltered homeless, which is people that are not in shelters. Those folks overwhelmingly are suffering from addiction and mental illness or both. So we've just seen massive increases, and those numbers I even I mentioned are pretty out of date. At this point, it's probably more like a 50% increase in the homeless population in California. But to give you a sense of it, I mean, you can't walk around downtown San Francisco or downtown Los Angeles without seeing people using drugs publicly, defecating publicly. There are tents really everywhere downtown, but even across much of the city. For a long time, this dysfunctional behavior was confined to a small number of poor, mostly African-American neighborhoods in our cities. As the drug addiction crisis grew worse and more people came from around the country, but also from within these regions to live on the street and support their addiction, those numbers grew so large that they were no longer contained by those neighborhoods. And so that's why, I mean, that's why I have a book contract on it. That's why it's a subject of national debate is because really it was no longer containable and it started to spread, uh, the problem started to spread throughout the whole city. So, you know, you just see gigantic sums of money being spent on cleaning up feces. We have porta potties all over the city, but it doesn't really matter because people often don't use them and really open-air drug dealing. We have organized gangs that engage in turf wars. There's homicides. We've seen an overall increase of homicides by 30% between 2019 and 2020. We've seen an increase in all sorts of other crimes, property crimes, some of which are driven by addiction, like robbing convenience stores and drug stores. But we've also seen more organized crimes, organized thefts and lootings of department stores. We've seen a lot more carjackings, car break-ins. 
So really, on the one hand, you could say that we're all of this is a drug and crime problem, but really it's a governance issue where many of these cities have just stopped doing what cities had traditionally done to maintain law and order. And they've stopped doing that in really, and I argue, uh, out of a kind of ideological commitment to radical left politics, to a kind of political correctness or what we might call victim ideology or woke ideology, which is something I know that you've discussed a lot on this program. But basically the idea that there are some people in the world who are victims and to them, everything should be given and nothing and nothing uh, required or requested in return. When I was growing up, every few years, I would go to San Francisco because I had family friends over there and I would find the city absolutely wondrous. We'd visit Alcatraz and all these fantastic museums and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. If I was to go to the city today, how likely would I be to encounter the problems that you've mentioned? And would you recommend visiting San Francisco to people now? Well, I recommend visiting San Francisco if you have a sense of adventure, but your chances of encountering street addicts, people living in tents on the street are 100%. I mean, it's unavoidable. You can, in fact, it's only gotten worse since the book came out, which is sort of continues to be shocking to me, even though I spent three years researching the book and two years writing it, that the problem just kept getting worse and worse. And that's sort of the nature of what happens when you don't treat addiction or mental illness. You know, those are tricky diseases to treat because the person who's suffering them doesn't want treatment often. They just want to maintain their addictions. But yeah, I mean, you see very large numbers of tents, very large numbers of people pushing shopping carts with all their belongings in it. You see a lot of public drug use, a lot of public drug dealing. Part of what makes San Francisco was always difficult to contain the drug dealing in part because it was in a downtown neighborhood called the Tenderloin. But even in Los Angeles, you see in the Skid Row neighborhood, which is also right next to the downtown, you see incredibly large structures. I mean, I've been impressed by, in, in a bad way, uh, how big the, the tent structures have become. You're now talking, you know, on the one hand, a lot of them are just regular backpacking or camping tents. But we're now seeing very large structures with wood, with people using propane tanks for cooking, barbecues, whole sidewalks being blocked. You're talking areas of a 10 block radius in places like uh, Los Angeles, which by far is the worst. San Francisco is so small, so I think it's partly it's harder to get away from, but it's also just spread throughout Los Angeles so that the parks have many tents in them. And so it's, and then the cities become filthy. So even when you clean them regularly, if you're having a lot of people living on the street, they're using the street as their bathroom. So the smell, the filth, the uncleanliness, lots of garbage get produced by homeless people, you know, not just because they don't have regular trash to use, but there's also a kind of hoarding that goes on, people openly deconstructing bikes and what we call chop shops, basically stealing bikes and trying to sell them off per, for parts. I think what's so striking though, is that really the people on the street are very comfortable at this point, knowing that there won't be any consequences for their behavior. You see extraordinary scenes. I mean, there's scenes where people will basically take up not just the whole sidewalk, but large parts of the street itself with their belongings, with their garbage. I mean, I have you know, photos of people that really, they, they occupy very large amounts of space outside of businesses. 
and the city government and the police are basically unwilling or unable to do anything in part because we have these very progressive left-wing district attorneys, prosecutors who won't prosecute these crimes, which they view as quality of life crimes that are less important than the so-called victims who are perpetrating them. Why do these people choose LA and San Francisco and cities like this to go and live there out on the streets? Is it because of the lack of consequences you talk about for the crimes that they could commit, for example? Yeah, I mean, the main reason is that, you know, if you're suffering, I mean, there's all sorts of stories of it too, but people that are addicted to hard drugs, they know that there are certain cities they can go to where they can gain uh, easy and inexpensive access to heroin, fentanyl, methamphetamine. Just to give you a sense of it, you can maintain your fentanyl addiction. And fentanyl, of course, is the opioid that has replaced heroin in San Francisco, not totally, but has really substituted for heroin in San Francisco and other cities. It's 50 times more potent than heroin, significantly more dangerous. It's part of the reason we have so many people dying. But part of the reason is, is that it's so cheap because it's so concentrated. So you can maintain your, your fentanyl addiction for as little as $10 a day in San Francisco right now. Similarly, you can maintain a meth addiction for $10 a day. And it's, it's increasingly common for there to be what we call poly drug use or people using both meth and fentanyl, sometimes simultaneously, but throughout the day. And the result is mental illness and often brain damage. We know that these drugs long-term used in the ways that they're being used cause brain damage. They cause serious mental illness, including uh, psychosis. So it's really um, out of control. There's definitely a role of climate. I mean, people point out that, you know, you can sleep year round in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles because the weather is so mild. That's disproven though, by the fact that in places like Miami and other warm cities, they have disallowed the public camping and the open air drug use. They still have a problem, but it's, it's significantly curtailed. They require people to stay in homeless shelters, even if they don't want to. A lot of addicts don't want to sleep in shelters and understandably so. Um, there's rules there. You're not allowed usually to shoot drugs um, in the shelter. You have to go outside to use your drugs. There's more pressure put on you to reform your behavior. So it's definitely a consequence of the political environment, which really also stems from a libertarian cultural milieu. I want to quote from an article that got me interested in this subject last year by Oliver Wiseman. And it goes to the impact that the lack of consequences for doing basic and simple crimes has on people within these cities. So he says, in April, Sincere Williams, a baby of just nine months, was declared dead in a San Francisco emergency room with signs of trauma on his body. In January, newlywed 26-year-old Sharia Mascoria was killed on his morning jog when a drunk career criminal in a stolen 4x4 ran a red light and struck him. A few weeks before, in the middle of the day, Hanako Abe and Elizabeth Platt were killed in a hit and run by another criminal with a long rap sheet also driving a stolen car and high on crystal meth. In each of these cases, the perpetrator had been recently released by the police, either on parole or because of a failure to bring charges. Police had already detained the man suspected of murdering Williams twice this year after domestic violence incidents. The man who killed Abe and Platt had also been arrested for 73 felonies and 32 misdemeanors in San Francisco alone. Can you talk about the impact that these policies have on the residents of these cities? 
Yeah, I mean, what you just basically described is what we've seen. There's a, a broader movement, though it certainly started in San Francisco and it's been going on in San Francisco for several decades. And some of it is positive, but it's gone way too far, which is that, you know, the United States, we had, we have very high levels of incarceration compared to the rest of the world. We, and I trace the history of this in San Francisco, but basically, you know, we probably over-incarcerated in the 1980s and 1990s in response to significant amounts of violence, including related to drugs, but not exclusively related to drugs. There was then a backlash against that, which I was a part of in the 1990s to seek alternatives to incarceration, many of which I think are really positive, including psychiatry, drug rehabilitation, which requires drug testing, electronic monitoring, and forms of probation and parole that would allow criminal offenders to be reintegrated back into their families and communities and out of prison. The problems that have occurred that have occurred have been that the, pro the really the radical left prosecutors have just gone way too far. And there was sort of, I mean, I personally feel misled on a couple of things here, which is that there was an understanding when I was working on this over 20 years ago, which was that there would be some other forms of accountability and requirements on people to take responsibility for the crimes they'd committed to get their lives back on order. But the response from many prosecutors, including San Francisco, has basically been just to let people off without any consequences, without probation or parole. We know that half of all people let out of jail before their trial go on to commit new offenses. Three quarters of people arrested for violent offenses that are offenses that are let out before trial go on to commit new offenses. So there's just been a complete kind of, I think, fairly radical experiment to not charge people even for very serious crimes, to not require people to get the psychiatric or addiction care they need. This problem is complicated by the fact that the United States doesn't have a proper functioning mental health or psychiatric care system. We don't have universal health care like exists in most developed economies. So that's a big part of the problem. But the left didn't pursue creating, you know, the kind of psychiatric and addiction care services that was required. They just basically in a kind of white guilt, a liberal guilt over historic racism and over incarceration have just been letting people off the hook without any consequences. And so you ask what the, what the effect is on the residents. The effect is fear. Many people do leave, you know, families with kids, you know, leave because it's not safe. People are turning to private security companies, which I consider an extremely ominous trend, especially if you consider the need to have a functioning cities and a functioning civilization, you need to have, you need to have universal security. So the consequence has been really to exacerbate existing trends of inequality and a frame of social solidarity, which is necessary to have a functioning civilization and functioning cities. One of the most interesting things about this topic is that money doesn't seem to equal 
better results necessarily. So you can throw money at the problem and homelessness might continue to increase. Can you describe to people what the progressive approach is to drugs, to crime, to homelessness, and how that has worked out in these cities in America? Well, that's right. I mean, we've seen our spending on homelessness in, in San Francisco has increased almost tenfold over the last decade. And yet during that time, we saw a 30% increase in homelessness. So to some extent, there's something called a magnet effect, whereby when you offer people free housing, free services, even free needles with which to shoot heroin, you end up attracting addicts. This is a very well-known phenomenon. Though I do think that in some ways, just the fact that there's laws are not being enforced and that drugs are cheap and plentiful is the, I ultimately conclude, is the main driver of people coming here. But I even spoke to a very well-positioned, high-ranking homelessness official in San Francisco, and this person told me that the situation got much worse after their budgets increased, and that actually there was a period where the budgets did not increase, that they were able to get the situation under better control. So the spending of money on this problem has made it significantly worse. It doesn't have to be that way. You know, there are some parts of the psychiatric care system that are quite expensive, particularly providing people with psychiatric care in hospitals, but even rehab, particularly if it's a proper 90-day rehabilitation, which is what's needed, plus another three months of probation or kind of halfway house. Those things are expensive. They require money but the, the you need to mandate them. You can't, if people break the law and it's because of their addiction or mental illness, then the proper approach is to offer them rehab or psychiatric care as an alternative to prison, not as optional. Well, we've made it completely optional. So there's been a bunch of money spent on voluntary services that has been basically money completely wasted I, I was just on the street a, a couple of weeks ago and there was a group of people, five people that were literally in the street. They had surrounded themselves with police barricades. They were near a heating vent to stay warm, but they literally occupying part of the street right across from City Hall. You know, there was feces around them, lots of garbage. There's a lot of used needles. One of the men the worker I was with said, you guys got to get up and clean up. And the guy said, I can't, my hip is broken. I mean, he's literally on the street. His hip is broken. He's clearly in the late stages of deep addiction. A homeless outreach team drove by called the hot team. We told him this person needs care. Well, one week later, that same person was still on the street. And the reason is, is because San Francisco the policy is that if somebody says, well, I don't want care, if they want to refuse care, even if they're breaking the law because of this obeisance to victims, supposed victims, and also the idea that somehow they're representing their care accurately, they just left them there. So, I mean, that sort of thing is quite common. And so, you know, just to give a sense of it, we're so rich in San Francisco, in California. I mean, it's the levels of wealth here. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think it's probably fair to say are greater than really any other city or region in human history, unless you count maybe, you know, like oil rich places like Saudi Arabia, or United Arab Emirates. But we have a huge number of billionaires we spend more than any other state on mental health. We spend more on homelessness than any other state. And we have a $31 billion surplus in California this year because of the tech boom. So much of our taxes come from incomes. You have to remember, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, lives in San Francisco. The CEO of Twitter lives in San Francisco. So our biggest tech billionaires not to mention just many venture capitalists and many others you've never heard of live and pay taxes in in San Francisco and California. And, and yet it looks like a slum. You know, I mean, it's really quite a remarkable situation where so much wealth produces so much human misery and poverty. And the irony is that the entire purpose or alleged purpose behind their policies is compassion. And yet how can you think of anything that's more or, or less compassionate rather than the current situation that you're describing. Have policymakers removed the onus from the individual to improve their lives onto the state or onto society, which they blame for these issues? So they, as you mentioned earlier, might say that the, the problem isn't drug addiction, but it is that they live, we live in a society which is dominated by white supremacy or by racial injustice or whatever. And that's the issue that we need to tackle, not the problems that individuals face. Yeah, that's you have it exactly right. I, I think there's three important thinkers here on the radical left. Um, the most important and most recent is Michel Foucault, the French historian. Foucault's work really demonized the institutions of civilization. He demonized medical care. He demonized psychiatric care. He was part of a number of radical thinkers in the 60s that basically said that that mental illness is a myth, that psychiatry is just a way to control people and to marginalize deviance as a way to establish what is rational and normal for everybody else. Real disservice to people with serious mental illness. There's also, of course, Marx, the idea being that we live in a really unjust system called capitalism. And that there's a much more, there's a much better uh, system that we can create that's radically different from the ones that we have that would have much better outcomes. And it really goes back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the idea that society is to blame for inequality, suffering, oppression, and that the system has to be radically altered. And I think part of that, so the idea is that individuals are innocent and free of responsibility for their own outcomes that all of us that our our life outcomes are entirely determined by society and so there is a kind of fatalism here which is really interesting because on the one hand it seems like because i think conservatism traditionally has been uh, more fatalistic but there's a fatalism here which basically says 
as long as we have a capitalist system, and they would go further and say racist and patriarchal and all the rest, all the other woke parts of the woke religion, as long as that system is in place, then you can expect the suffering. So to some extent, you see a really twisted enabling and production of victims out of an ideology which says that the system must create victims because the system is is evil capitalist and all the rest can we track these problems that you're describing throughout this interview and in your book to the popularization of the ideas that you just described yeah for sure i mean so when you interview and i did and so san francisco is really filled with interviews with the people that are responsible for the current situation they all agreed uh, really almost all of them agreed to talk with me it includes the so-called homelessness advocates who are in fact defenders of open drug scenes, open drug use, defenders of addiction, of allowing addiction to proliferate. I mean, it's quite amazing when you consider that addiction is a mental illness, it's a disease. These are people that are basically demanding that the disease not be treated. And it's in part because the disease is very different from other diseases in that most people with diabetes don't say, no, no, I want to maintain my diabetes. But that is the case with addiction. People say, no, no, I'd rather just stay here living in my filth on the street than get rehab and, and quit drugs. It's hard to imagine if you've never you know, suffered from one of those problems. But basically, we do have a set of people that are recovering addicts who talk about how they were mentally ill and they needed to be arrested. They needed there to be interventions to deal with their addictions. So, yes, I mean, you can see the, from Foucault, Marx, and Rousseau, the idea that the system is responsible for everything. It's an a priori assumption that if you see something bad in the world, if you see some misery in the world, that's the fault of the system, of the racist, capitalist, sexist system. And so that's why you see progressives basically trying to dismantle every important institution necessary for functioning civilization or society. You know, I'm working on a piece now about how progressives are basically attacking three important institutions. One is meritocracy, the idea that um, standardized tests and other forms of measuring ability are immoral because the consequences of meritocratic testing is racial inequality in schools. We also see progressives attacking policing, the broader criminal justice system, but even the idea that police, there's a, one of the, the things that is claimed and is obvious, is maybe not obviously, but is false, is that police don't prevent crimes. And so there's been an effort to defund the police that contributed significantly to the rise in homicides in the United States and an effort to get rid of reliable energy and reliable electricity. The interesting thing on that one is that Europeans have suffered the most from the consequence of attempting to power civilization entirely on weather dependent renewables. And we saw significant divestment of funding into reliable sources of power, whether it be oil and gas or nuclear. And so what, what I'm seeing is really a concerted effort to, when they, and they say progressives, the radical left will say, we wanna dismantle these institutions. They're very serious about it. And in some cases, these are institutions that need some reform policing, psychiatry, even the provision of electricity, these are all things that do merit some amount of reform. But that's not what's being pursued. What's being pursued is really the destruction of those institutions without any viable um, alternative being created in their place. 
And all of that can be traced back to the ideologies that were constructed by Foucault, Marx, and Rousseau, who basically just had a view of just tear it down. And there's a kind of, you know, you could call it socialism, but the problem is, is that it's really quite anti-statist. And so what I conclude in San Francisco is that this is really much more like a left libertarianism or an anarchism because it basically is out to destroy broader systems of governance that are um, required for a functioning nation state uh, or a functioning city. If their policies have failed so miserably, as, as you've said, why do they keep winning elections in these cities? Well, that's a very important question. That's where the, the book ends up kind of going there. I mean, I, I look at why do the book is uh, the subtitle is Why Progressives Ruin Cities. But the final reason that I give or that I explore is because conservatives and moderates let them and that there's, you know, in, in San Francisco, there is no conservative party. There's really no Republicans to speak of. So but you still have a left right conflict between progressives on the left and moderates on the right. And moderates, neither moderates in San Francisco nor Republicans in California or Republicans nationally have had much to say about these issues. There's been a demand for law and order, but there hasn't been, for example, a conservative proposal for universal psychiatric care, for drug rehabilitation. I've interviewed a lot of different conservatives and Republicans, and there's some, you know, there's a an American think tank based out of New York called Manhattan Institute, which advised Rudolph Giuliani, the Republican mayor of New York, and also other, has advised other Republican, but also more moderate Democratic mayors. They are now on board with some kind of universal psychiatric care. But universal health care has not been something that Republicans have been in favor of. Traditionally, they viewed it as a unacceptable increase of the state. I think that's made conservatives unable to offer a realistic alternative to progressive rule in California. And I think to some extent that's due to opposition to universal health care, but to some extent I think there's been discomfort on the right with, with psychiatry and psychology in general. I think the traditional conservatives had viewed that, you know, therapy, for example, as something that was best done within the family or done with the church and not something that required public taxpayer investment. You know, and we have a much more libertarian right in the United States than the right tends to be in other countries around the world. So I think that this the so-called right or the moderate or the conservative opposition has not offered a serious plan to these questions and still is not, you know, there's still, it's still a very rule. The other thing is that Republicans in the United States tend to be a very rural party. They tend to dominate more rural states. They tend to be more country people in general. I mean, that's true of the right internationally as well, but it's, I think it's even more true here. And so, you know, what I end up, where I end up going in my book and in, in San Francisco is I end up holding up as a model, the Netherlands, because in part because I, I thought San Franciscans would appreciate having a more liberal city as their model. And the Netherlands does a really good job in terms of treating addiction and mental illness. But I've also point out that the governing party in the Netherlands right now is the center-right party that came to power in part to deal with open-air drug scenes and open-air drug addiction in Amsterdam in the late 1980s and early 1990s 
that was very similar to what we have in San Francisco and other liberal cities. And I point out that really it's a center left party that's fine with decriminalized marijuana, decriminalized sex work, completely comfortable with gays and lesbians being married. So it's a more progressive center right in the Netherlands. And I think a, a more progressive center right like that would do very well in cities like San Francisco and in, in states like California. Let's talk briefly about New York. Recently, we've seen crime statistics. Crime has dramatically increased in um, the last few years in New York City. Are these progressive ideas sweeping across America and to other large cities around the world? They are, for sure. Although I think we're now starting to see a backlash against them. You know, I mentioned before I worked for George Soros' foundation in the late 1990s. His work continued over the last 20 years and incredibly effective, not just in sort of changing the conversation, but really also in electing progressive district attorneys who have basically started acting like defense attorneys in terms of not prosecuting crimes and also leading to the contributing to the demoralization of police since police become very frustrated if, if they make arrests and there's no consequence for the people they arrested. And then those efforts have also spread around the world. You know, Scotland actually has one of the worst drug epidemics in the world. It's a much smaller country, obviously, much smaller uh, region, but is suffering very serious levels of drug overdose also because of being enamored with harm reduction. Similarly, we've seen so-called harm reduction efforts in Canada have disastrous consequences. Even though Canada has universal health care, so obviously universal psychiatric and health care is not sufficient if you have extremely left-wing liberal policies on drug use like in Canada. And certainly in New York, in the last eight years under Mayor Bill de Blasio, it deteriorated significantly, significantly more unsheltered addicts and mentally ill people living on the streets, living on the sidewalks with no consequences. I was just in New York and I saw people... I saw somebody sleeping on a mattress on the sidewalk on, I think, 7th Avenue, and there was like two police officers right there who did nothing. And that's because they know there's no consequence um, if they do arrest somebody or tell them to move along. I do think we've seen a bit of a backlash against that with the election of, of Eric Adams, who's a former police officer as the mayor of New York, elected as a moderate Democrat. But it's, it's not obvious that he'll, what he'll be able to change because they also have a very progressive district attorney. And so I think we're in a very dynamic moment right now. I think there's a lot of possibilities for there to be, I think there is a significant backlash against these left-wing policies around drugs and crime in American cities. But the progressive movement is very powerful. It's very strong. It basically has almost total conformity on the part of the journalists who at the mainstream news media in the United States are incredibly one-sided in their coverage of this. I found in my interactions with some of the journalists that many of them either don't know or they pretend not to understand the difference between arresting somebody and incarcerating them. Many addicts need to be arrested and people with mental illness need to be arrested when they break the law. That doesn't mean they need to go to prison for 20 years, but when you explain that in places like Portugal and Netherlands, which are held up as models for places like San Francisco and other progressive cities, when I point out that in fact, drug users who use drugs publicly are arrested in Amsterdam and Lisbon, the response I've gotten from many journalists has been, well, but that's not true. They don't send drug addicts to prison. 
So I, there's a sort of some deliberate, I think, misunderstanding or misinformation on the part of the journalists. Many Democrats, progressives really don't have a very subtle view of this. They don't actually understand that you can mandate drug rehab and that it works. There's a lot of mythologies that have been promoted, including, you know, I, I think Vice, the media company has been a, a major purveyor of misinformation on a lot of these questions. So you have a lot of really, you have, a very, you have traditionally a very polarized environment where people think that their only two choices are to send people to prison for 20 years or to do nothing. And part of what I've tried to do with San Francisco and with our writings and our advocacy has been to sort of show that actually there's many other things that can be done, including coercive measures that are not the same as just, you know, putting people in prison and throwing away the key. And as you rightly mentioned earlier, any attempt to be tougher on crime, for example, is simply painted as part of a white supremacist or racist system which disproportionately impacts African-Americans. The other thing I want to talk about was, is this defund the police movement. How effective has that been in cities like New York and other places? Well, it's very interesting. I've been writing a lot about how, in some ways, the progressive criminal justice agenda is falling apart. And really, the thing that it fell apart on is defund the police. So to remind everybody, you know, we had a spectacular killing of an African-American man, George Floyd, that was caught on video by a police officer in Minneapolis last year. It led immediately to massive Black Lives Matter protests. Many of those protests were demanding defunding the police, which meant in practical terms, diverting money from police departments to other social services. There were certainly some people that also went even further and argued for police abolition and really the abolition of jails and prisons. But the defund the police agenda was actually very popular in liberal and progressive cities. So we saw many cities, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Austin, uh, New York, taking Oakland, taking measures to defund the police, including announcements by mayors, announcements by city councils. However, those same city governments quickly reversed themselves after homicides spiked, part in response to really two things. Uh, the first is sort of the withdrawal of police officers from traditional policing functions, including ones that are proven to reduce violence and homicide which is often just a lot of engagement with community members, a lot of interaction with potential criminals. You know, it's important to remember that uh, good police officers and good policing, they know the people that are at high risk of committing crimes, including homicides. And being in their face, having a, a positive relationship with them and their families, just walking around, being engaged, those things really do matter. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that they matter, even though that's often denied by the radical left. We know that policing matters. There's also good evidence that the mentality of would-be criminals changes during anti-police protests and in response to viral videos that show police brutality. And we think that that influences the decisions that criminals make, in particular around homicides. Homicides are a very emotional crime. They're not, people that are committing them are usually not thinking about the long term. But there is some sense in which we see an increase in homicides and crimes 
by people who don't believe in the system or who think the system is broken or corrupt or inherently racist or being administered in racist ways. And so this is a real problem if you are, as a progressive or a liberal out there, communicating that the whole system is racist and broken and unfair, you're basically providing a justification for people to commit crimes. Now, as soon as you say this, the response is, well, what about real problems? Is, this, is the idea then that we shouldn't raise concerns about real problems in policing? And of course, the answer is, of course not. We should always try to improve policing. But it's worth pointing out that police violence, including police killing of civilians, has declined significantly. I believe it's declined over 30% um, over the last 30 years. So we've made significant improvements of course, that's not reason to stop. We need to make continue to make improvements. But contingent uh, requirement of improving policing is to have more police, not less. So if you're concerned about police violence, you should want to refund the police. You should want to increase funding for police. A new study came out that actually showed that the United States is relatively under-policed compared to European countries. That may sound surprising because I think we see there's a sense in which American police are very present, particularly in high crime neighborhoods, but it's not the case on a per capita basis. And there's other things that progressives said, well, we want to see social workers and therapists and psychologists respond to mental health calls. Somebody calls the cops and says there's a crazy guy screaming and smashing car windows with a crowbar or threatening somebody or somebody on the street in a state of psychosis, 90% of those calls can be violent. And so when you interview social workers that, that respond to those calls, many of them will tell you that they want to be with a police officer because those are dangerous calls to be in. So, you know, one of the things that's been going on over the last few weeks is that progressives have been gaslighting the public and others and saying that defund the police never happened. Well, they're right in the sense that cities decided not to defund the police after crime and homicides increased in 2020. But it's really misleading because the demands for defunding the police were met with a response from policymakers in many cities to defund the police that were then later reversed. But that those efforts to defund the police, the anti-police protests and the decisions to cut police budgets did result in significant police resignations, withdrawals, demoralization, and that had a big impact, according to most criminologists and anybody who's got a sense of common sense here, had a big impact on what police officers have been doing over the last couple of years. How have progressives reacted to your book, if they have reacted at all? And are they simply sort of doubling down on their policies at the moment? Or is there any shift in places like San Francisco? Well, it's been a very interesting response to the book, as you might imagine. And this is the second book I've had in two years. My first book last year on the environment, which was also a critique of the left, was basically just ignored. Well, it was attacked, but then it was it was not reviewed in the New York Times, which is our most influential newspaper. San Francisco was reviewed in the New York Times. It was viciously attacked, claiming I didn't interview any homeless people, which is absurd. I interviewed uh, hundreds and told their stories but then the times at the end of the year came out and made it an editor's choice they gave it an editor's choice designation which suggests that somebody there maybe thought that the review was unfair 
I've received emails from progressives and liberals who told me that at first they didn't want to read the book or they were reading the book to basically just attack me. And then they realized that the book is really not, it's not a conservative book. It's a liberal book in the sense that I argue for universal psychiatric care, for example, and I argue for a very compassionate approach, even though I also uh, recognize the need for law enforcement. People have been coming around, but the biggest shift by far has been the San Francisco mayor the book, by the way, the San Francisco was, has not been reviewed by the local newspaper. It's been reviewed by the economist, uh, your paper, the telegraph reviewed it. It's been reviewed by the second largest Spanish newspaper, the, one of the biggest Danish newspapers, uh, reviewed by the New York times, but the local San Francisco paper has not reviewed it or really discussed it or profiled me, even though I've been a subject of the newspaper of the San Francisco Chronicles coverage for over 20 years. But the mayor of San Francisco two weeks ago came out and announced a big crackdown on open air drug use, on drug dealing, on so-called homelessness. I think that my book contributed significantly to creating the environment in which she felt the need to respond and to issue and to really demand a role for law enforcement. And so we're in an extremely dy dynamic moment. I mean, I'm working on a piece now about what we can do to save San Francisco. You know, part of the problem is that the traditional leaders of dynamic cities like San Francisco are what we would call the bourgeoisie or the new industrial class of capitalists and entrepreneurs. Well, that's the high tech sector. And, you know, unlike the Carnegie's or the Rockefeller's, you know, of the last uh, centuries, these are folks that are highly mobile. You know, there's a sociological term that's, you know, we say there's somewhere people and anywhere people. Somewhere people are stuck with where they live. They have to do their work in a particular place. Anywhere people can have a laptop and work anywhere in the world. And so I think part of the problem is that there's not a lot of loyalty to San Francisco on the part of the San Franciscan elites. So you would expect to see like the tech class, the capitalist class, really step up to the plate, run candidates for election, fund the think tanks and media initiatives to really push back against the dogmatism. And that really hasn't happened. I mean, it's happening to some extent, but it's not really happening at the level at which you would hope to see it happen. And that's a real problem because I think this is a broader problem that we see, which is sort of this idea that, you know, there's like not very much loyalty either to city or state or country. You can kind of live anywhere. You have cryptocurrency, which makes you even less um, loyal to your nation. And so there's a sense, I think, by a lot of wealthy people that are in a position to turn the situation around San Francisco of kind of why bother? You know, my life is fine. I can put my kids in private schools. I can live in some other part of the world. I can move to Austin, Texas or wherever. So I think this declining strands of solidarity, which I think that the nationalist right has been responding to, have been a real obstacle to getting the kind of changes we want to see. You know, that being said, San Francisco, I think the other issue is just that it's become a, a national embarrassment. It's been become the punchline of jokes. It's become a kind of symbol of Democratic Party failures of governance. So I was just watching a Fox News segment last night that I thought was going to be about homelessness in San Francisco, but it was just used as a kind of prop 
as a symbol of how terrible Democrats are at governing. So I do think that there's a response to what's going on from within the Democratic Party, from some of the elder strategists and leaders of the party who think that the representation of American progressivism and American liberalism by San Francisco is really undermining the Democratic Party brand and that something has to be done about it. But it's an extremely dynamic situation that there's just not a consensus yet in San Francisco for the mayor to do the kind of things that she and I think people around her know that she needs to do in order to get the situation under control. Thank you, Michael, for joining us. That was really interesting and a lot to think about there, I think, for other cities around the world, not only in America. Thanks, Stephen. It was great to be with you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.